Hi, this is Yona. Welcome to episode two of the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This episode is Dying for the Truth. Oh, oh, what fun. I mean, dying for the truth. I'm just going to get right to it about it. I mean, dying for the truth is what's really dying is the truth. Of course, why is it dying? Because we're all trying to find it. We're all trying to figure it out. We're all putting so much value on it for so long. And when you do something like that to something like truth, eventually it breaks, it crumbles. It's not a new trend even. I mean, what do you think postmodernism is? What do you think abstraction is? There are amazing forms of truth and reason. They're very valuable things. But, at the end of the day, they are not any reason to just control your life, you know? You can't let them control your life. There are truisms everywhere. How are you supposed to act? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to behave? Philosophy reached a certain peak in the 20th and 21st century. It was a peak that came after the philosophy of language became popular where people started understanding behavior and function and started seeing philosophy in terms of what good is as being about what theories we possess and how they cash out in real life value. If you look at a philosopher, I'll bring him up all the time, like Quine, William von Orman Quan. He has so much written about every subject, every subject, and a very little bit written about morality. And the reason why it's a very little bit is because it very neatly and well ties to everything else he's written. You know, for him, morality is the beauty of the theory that we possess. To have a theory that allows us to understand our behaviors, to understand our world, you know, a proper science. For some, you know, that morality became the highest calling and becomes something that's even before, you know, the truth of science in this age. And You get a lot of very strange arguments there, you know, you get uh, relativist, cultural relativisms, which is a boondoggle of a problem, trying to figure out how to value each other from culture to culture, trying to figure out what, you know, is right, trying to figure out what is wrong, and what's okay. All this reflects back to something we talked about in the first um, episode 
on focus, all this reflects back to this manner of how much time we're going to put into understanding our lives and how much good we're going to get out of it and it's such a complex situation in the other sense of dying for the truth we are all really wanting to know there's probably not a person out there who if you explain to them that there was this thing called right and wrong and if you knew what was right you know and you did what was right you would rightfully be benefiting always from it there's not a person out there who wouldn't want to be acquainted with that there's not a person out there who wouldn't want to act that way all the time and when you go back and look at it you have socrates as represented by Plato, saying something akin to that no person knowingly does wrong or bad to themselves. That got me through my teenage years a lot, you know? That part in our life is a confusing time, and we're doing so much in our lives that may be hurting us. Maybe we're smoking cigarettes, maybe we're mouthing off to authority, maybe we're being uh, brooding and nihilistic or maybe we're you know shutting everything else out and being perfect and not letting any bad in whatsoever which is irrealistic you know either way we're doing something either way you're doing something that seems like it's not in your best interest seems like you're doing wrong by yourself or evil by yourself and if socrates is telling us that we do not knowingly do wrong or evil by ourselves how are we supposed to understand these behaviors you know when i was a kid i struggled with a drug addiction and i did affirmations as part of my uh, recovery or whatever you would call it at that point <laughs> And I had to get up and tell myself, you know, that I was beautiful and that I loved myself and that I care for myself. And I'd do that and then I'd get really upset because I'm like smoking cigarettes and how could I love myself if I'm smoking cigarettes. And at a young age, I, you know, thought of this theory that, um, you know, there's ways to nurture yourself that are negative. You know, you can nurture yourself. It's still nurturing even though it has a negative aspect. And it's okay, that's the positive, that it's nurturing you. I found ways around it, and there really are, you know, ways around it, as Socrates would say. Ultimately, the best understanding I ever put in my young life around all of this was that... If I was doing something and it seemed detrimental, that the truth of the matter is, is that I was missing something, you know, I wasn't seeing something that made it good, and that thing, you know, would be revealed to me. I came down to having, you know, some kind of faith in myself. Ultimately, that's what I needed to tell myself at that point to keep going on. I know better 
you know, at this point that there were some things that I really did have to address and be open and open-minded about. I just didn't have the opportunity in my life at that point. I didn't have the skills and I certainly didn't have the support. Everything was going against me. I was dying for the truth, for sure. I really needed to know what up and down was, you know. And I really didn't know. I was so, so very, very confused. And a lot of us out there have greater degrees of this, lesser degrees of this, you know, going on in our lives. How are we supposed to knowingly do good for ourselves so we're not unknowingly doing harm to ourselves but it's actually good and it's okay how are we supposed to get on top of that process so we don't end up in this weird socratic paradox a lot of um leaving my adolescence became about this for me you know, about this question and this problem. Oh, boy, did I care about truth. You know, I called myself an epistemologist, a philosopher. I would write it on everything that, you know, asked for my profession, even though I was just studying. And at that point, I didn't even understand what a motivation to produce a genuine philosophical argument was. Not only, or nonetheless actually understand what my motivation was and be able to tap into it and bring it out and, you know, put some compelling analysis to it. I was, I was nowhere near any of it. I was very, you know, beyond hurt and confused. Like I said, I, I didn't have the proper venues. I found my way out through philosophy and through doing work on myself, through spending time with myself, through more than anything, not accepting anything as truth. When you start accepting things as truth, everything around it crumbles, and then it's interesting, you find another truth, and then the truth you just had crumbles, and everything around that crumbles, and you'll go in circles, you know, just setting up and knocking down these constructions in your mind. It sounds horrible, for all intents and purposes it is horrible, but I had to do it for a very long time. Just to understand, just to be comfortable, or just to, you know, comfort myself. If you have to do it, it's okay. The best thing I could tell you is Nothing's true. Nothing's true. And I'm gonna do some work right now to prove it to you. And not even this proof is gonna end up as being true. And I'm gonna fix this for you. I'm gonna fix the problem. There's a way to fix this problem. It's really cool, I think. It's actually the basis of a book I'm writing. Let's not get into that just now. So... Here it goes. Let me try to explain a little bit behaviorally first. What I came to understand is that people are changing, right? They're in this flux. I'm in this flux. I'm changing over time. 
I'm growing in different ways at different rates and I'm able to you know put my time and attention and grow myself you know and all of this obviously involves if you look at it as truth all of this involves negative aspects if you're growing in one way you're not having the time to grow in another we're putting that aside we're looking at the positive and the constructive because I'm growing I'm changing time's happening it's going it's not stopping just because I see a negative so I've decided that I have to make the next decision how am I gonna do right how am I gonna do right I've got to make the next decision and how am I gonna do right so this is what I came to how do I solve the Socratic paradox I need to make the next right decision. All I can do is access the information I have available to me. So I need to be honest with myself. I need to be genuine to all the information I have available to me at any point. And so long as I've done that, my decision, it's got to be the right decision. I mean, I couldn't possibly know better. And that's okay, you know, that as we go through life, we can't know everything, so we're at a point where we can't possibly know better. So we have to make the decision that takes into account everything we know. But at the same time, it's not just okay that, you know, we couldn't possibly know better, because we can know that we can't possibly know better. So there's got to be another part to this, and there is. And the other part is that we need to be aiding in growing ourselves. We need to be utilizing our focus to direct our growth. We need to be constantly gaining more understanding so as we make the next decision, the next right decision, we have more information at our disposal. It takes as much time in life to change as it does to stay the same it takes as much effort to resist change as it does to change and maybe the only difference is that there's this new territory when you change when you you know resist there's hardly any new territory there's just the new territory the stress that comes along with resisting there's not this whole new unknown the unknown, though, is only scary when we have to find the absolute truth of the unknown. Then it's a lot to deal with. But if all we have to do is reflect on the unknown from, you know, where we're experiencing it, it's, it's intuitive, you know, at least at first. And we have the time. We do have the time to sit there and analyze, to understand, you know, that unknown. That is something you have in your life. Like I said, the moments keep going, you know, so you have the time. So we decided that to make the right decision, we're going to act on the entirety of our knowledge, honestly and genuinely, and we're going to seek to grow that understanding. That's all we have to do for ourselves. But we're not the only people here. Yes, I'm still smoking cigarettes. <laughs>
Actually, I came back to it. Let's not get off topic. We're not the only people here. So, what are we to do? Like, how are we going to get along with other people and treat other people given these situations? Well, what do we say? I'm growing. I'm growing. I'm always growing. So if I'm growing, everyone's growing. Well, if I come up to another person and we become friends and then we have a situation where both of us have different truths and values and there's an issue, what seems to be able to be said about the issue is it has to do with our levels of personal growth. So I, you know, have a problem with this person because of their growth. What am I going to do about it? Well, for me, I believe that it's not just you who's always good and acting in your own best interest, but everyone's always good acting in their own best interest. So I believe this person's genuinely good, and I don't want to treat them, you know, ill, and I don't want to see them as immature in any way so i have to understand that this person is growing at their own pace so everyone then has to have the right to grow at their own pace if you know anything about moral philosophy most of the commands we decide are moral we have to understand two phrasings for them they're positive and negative phrasing you know, so everyone has the right to grow at their own pace. And likewise, negatively speaking, you do not have the right to encroach on anyone's growth. You know, this happens all over moral philosophy, where if we have a law positively, we also have it negatively. There's the categorical imperatives of Kant, where you are both always to act upon maxims that are willable to all people, but you're also never to act upon any maxim that is not willable to all people. You know, and both of those things say different things. So here, again, we're going to make sure to allow people to grow at their own rate, and we're not going to encroach on people's right to do so. We understand that they are, and we're not going to get in the way. That's awesome, you know? It gets rid of a lot, a lot of problems, and it puts us in an orientation of understanding. You know, we, when we have this issue with someone, we want to understand where they're at with their growth, and we want to understand that it's a different place and maybe see if there's anywhere that we could help them. So everyone has their right to grow at their own rate, and you shouldn't encroach on their rate of growth. And the, you know, only other thing we could, you know, say maybe we have some issue where we need to resolve. We have like a value problem. We just need some value to be paramount. So what else could we say? You know, in a situation like that where it can't just simply let the other person 
grow and we can't just simply, you know, not get in the way. We're in the way. In that case, well, just like, you know, Kant said, to treat people as ends in themselves and never merely means, we have to find some way to honor our thinking, but also place a judgment. Mm. So, what we have to do is we have to never treat people as though they're not growing and advancing. Like a death sentence. <laughs> be treating people as though there's no room for growth. It's in these ways that we end up supplanting truth and this quest for absolute truth with just some kind of functioning system, something that makes sense to us, something that allows us to be positive, and something that gives us comfort you could act by these rules that I'm saying, or you could even act by Kant's rules, or, you know, Aristotle's idea of virtue, and you will reap the benefits of what you have sown. Now see, we're starting to get to the actual truth of the matter, and why you should not be dying for the actual truth of the matter. When people construct a theory, what they find in the world is the theory that they constructed. We put truth in the world. If you look at the most complicated levels of philosophical logic, which are proof levels, and the rules of proof, and the definitions and standards of proof, what you will find is that those definitions and standards are, you know, laid out by people and it's agreed that the definitions could be almost arbitrary as long as they're functional. Well, what does this all say for truth? It doesn't simply just say that there's no truth because there's definitely truth and like we said at the beginning of the show, it's definitely meaning. What it says is what we said last week when we were talking about focus, is that truth is something that's subsumed. It is something that is reined in under the construction of ours. So if we try to understand truth as something that's absolute, if we try to understand truth as something that's life and death, then we're putting the powers of absolute and the powers of life and death in the hands of humanity. And by all philosophical thinking, good philosophical thinking, human philosophical thinking, we know that we're not omnipotent and omnipresent and we're not infinite and we're finite. And by our own thinking, we know that we're changing and growing all the time and we do not end up respecting that if we put the powers of truth in our own hands in terms of life and death. So our truths really should never be ruling over other people. I mean, they shouldn't even really be ruling over you. If anything should be ruling over you, it should be your reality.
you know? And your focus is your own ability to rule back. And these measurements, these ways that society ends up coming together, they're very integral. It takes into account all of what's going on and it puts an output. And there's so many ways to approach it and change it. There's so many avenues and venues for positive and constructive. It is okay to put the negative in the background and it's okay to put the absolute truth in the background and it's okay to put absolute knowledge in the background and let it go. You're not gonna fail some eternal grand test if you don't find out the secrets of the universe. In fact, that might be the only secret of the universe. You know? It really might be that there is no grand test. There is no secret to the universe. That's the only secret. Everything there is there to be understood, there to be figured out, there to be observed, there to be framed, and there to be focused on. Truth is something that you should approach with so much caution if you're going to make a big deal out of it because it is very, very limited and it is very narrow. And you should never, ever conflate it with something that's not limited and narrow because mostly what you're going to cause is a lot of heartache for yourself. And for the rest of us, you know... So, anytime we're dying for the truth, what we mean to say is that the truth is dying. It's dying for the truth. It's that time. And it's not supposed to be postmodernism, because there are understandings. There is truth. It's just not the king, and we are not living in truth's kingdom. No one and nothing is. So how do you solve those paradoxes? And how do you solve it ultimately? It's because, and I call this the counterexample paradox. When it comes to truth, we say it's not okay because there's a counterexample to everything. Well, if there's a counterexample to everything, there has to be a counterexample to the fact that there's a counterexample to everything. And the only one that I know of is that statement itself, that there is a counterexample to everything. And that is an absurd paradox, but what it shows us is that if there's any knowledge to be constructed, it's to be constructed positively. Is there anything we could know that is outside of language, we've asked in philosophy? Well, of course. If we construct something knowable that's outside of language, we could know it, and it's something knowable outside of language. Are nonsense words understandable? Yes, they're understandable. They're made to be nonsense. Are they also nonsense? Yes, they're made to be nonsense words, and they're made to be understandable as nonsense words. These examples could go on forever. There's so many traps and so many puzzles, but at the end of the day, if you want to know what is up, what is the case, 
It just is. Right? There is a way in which things just are. And at the same time, nothing's true and everything's changing. And the sooner you stop relying on truths and looking for truths and even accepting these things, the better you're going to be. If you have a problem, the first thing you should think of is these parameters. And you should try to solve it in light of the things you really know about truth in this world. Which is that truth is a game you're playing. And this world just is. It's there in front of you. I hope this has all brought you as much peace as it brings me on a day-to-day -day basis. If it hasn't, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and you just feel at peace. I know it seems like you, you know, have to work and when you work you're going to have that moment of reward. But when it comes to psychology, that moment of reward comes at its own pace, you know. I really, um, I really love doing this, and I thank you all for your time and for taking this philosophical journey with me. Please feel free to leave comments, voicemails, anything on social media. I have time to deal with any, you know, questions, anything you want to add, I would love to discuss. And thank you so much to everyone out there listening. Like, say it to yourself. Thank you so much. This time doesn't have to come painstakingly. You don't have to do it like I did over hours and hours and hours and years and years and years. It's okay to allow the realities in from anywhere because... The only reason to care about where they came from is because of some weird thing called ownership, which I don't know if that makes sense, but maybe we'll get to that next week. <laughs> Anyways, stay tuned. Segment two coming up tomorrow. We have more to talk about when it comes to dying for the truth. Welcome back to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This is segment two of episode two dying for the truth and as always after our introduction to the topic the first segment of the episode we proceed with some real life examples to think about and around our topic now our topic was the death of the great empire of truth and how it could come to benefit the world greatly as a whole our first example, and most of, uh, well, the show's all done, you know, off the cuff. There's no written script, but obviously there's some conception in my mind of what to do. I mean, I'm a philosophical writer. I've been thinking about these arguments for decades now. However, I wasn't 
originally going to talk about this first example, but I started reading Self-Ownership, Freedom, and Equality by Gerald Arthur Cohen for like the seventh time. And by started reading, I mean I read his um, introductory chapter, and something about it just really clicked with this topic. He spends the good part of that chapter talking about what happened to him as a young, young Marxist in terms of his philosophical evolution and in terms of what happened to Marxism. And he discusses how he had to change his viewpoints in light of um, Robert Nozick's Anarchy, uh, State, and Utopia, and a certain argument about the uh, betterment of society by Wilt Chamberlain, and therefore his allowed inequalities. What I found, and what you'd find if you go look through this, is um, Cohen saying that certain things that were believed to be inevitable by the Marxist philosophy never happened. And because they never happened, different social and political philosophies started to crop up, and the proper place of one's thought in the area of social political philosophy is not just Marxism anymore, or socialism, or even capitalism, but rather it is a look into social and political philosophy and morals. Now, it's not as though there was no moral background for the Marxist philosophy, as Cohen makes clear. Rather, the Marxist philosophy guaranteed a state of moral goodness. Now, why did it fall apart, according to Cohen? Well, the last part of the Marxist philosophy, the realization of, you know, equality, is what didn't happen, and it didn't happen because he says no such class as the Marxist proletariat ever came to be. Why didn't they come to be in his point, in his perspective, is because there became a larger prevalent middle class in society, and this middle, middle class could be seen as uh, displayed by, let's call them libertarians, people who believe in freedom, self-ownership. Now these people, he compares to, you know, the Marxist proletariat. They're people who are having themselves alienated, they're products of labor alienated, you know, and they're becoming less well-off in society, maybe. But what's going on is there's a certain chasing of the upper class, where things are getting better for everyone. The upper class is moving, and the middle class is moving, and the inevitable proletariat revolution never happens. Instead, what you have is a different class of people who really just want to secure their liberty to, you know, make it into the upper class, to make things better than the upper class, to create a class better than the upper class. And the other reason why this happened, actually the reason why this happened, because it's not as though, you know, 
Marxism set off on its course, and then suddenly, you know, something happened and it was disturbed, really. Marxism had an element to it, several elements to it, but at least one that, you know, was irrealistic and never happened. The element that Cohen says is irrealistic and never happened was that Marxism at some point relied on humanity reaching some, you know, infinite material state in the sense of we have everything in society that we, you know, want to give each other, that we need for ourselves, and there's no need to fight over things because our socialist production, our communist society, has made enough things for everyone to have what they need. This never happened. And because this never happened, the rest of the Marxist philosophy kind of falls to the wayside. So many people for so many years lived and died for the Marxist philosophy. This is an example of what the kingdom of truth ends up doing to people. It's a great example of what the kingdom of truth ends up doing to people. When Marx wrote about the ends of capitalism, people were pretty, you know, secured into his position that that was going to be the ends of capitalism. But Marx seeing a impeding disaster and feeling this, you know, push in him as an alienated person himself to define this horror that the world faced didn't see certain things that were probable to happen. So in trying to craft a truth, in trying to secure against some, you know, horrible state of affairs, to try to find a falsehood against it, a reduction to absurdity, he allowed truth to go wild. There are so many examples of this throughout the history of philosophy, throughout the history of human thought. I'm sorry if this one bored the tar out of you. It's really kind of interesting in its own way, and, um, you know, I implore you to take a look at Cohen and Nozick and their arguments, and, you know, further thinkers like John Rawls. It's very interesting the things they have to say on society. And when you look at those arguments, I implore you to remember that none of these people have, in reality, attained the theories that they want, attained the theories that they strived for, that they, you know, philosophized to. Even, you know, a thinker such as Rawls that tried to outline why it is the American system and the capitalist system of justice is beautiful and fair in, you know, a way that doesn't need modification. Even a thinker such as that who is trying to figure out what was there and not trying to prophesize some truth into the situation ended up doing so and prophesizing some truth into the situation. You could say that the Continental Congress sat around with a veil of ignorance about distribution 
and came up with just laws for society. But no, it never really happened like that, you know? They, for the most part, were looking at the history of statecraft and understood how their decisions would have ramifications on the distribution to society. Either way, what are you personally to do when you're reading all this and when you're listening to such, compli <laughs> such complicated uh, possible nonsense as what we've been going over? You're supposed to keep in mind, according to the dying of the truth, that none of this is necessary. There's just possible worlds in the future where all of this could be the case, where people could be convinced to see things like this, and then there are forces that could come about because of that. Your job is not to go, no, Nozick, no, Cohen, yes, Cohen, yes, Nozick, yes, Rawls, no, these guys. Your job is to understand all these point of view, points of view and all these possible truths. As a modelist of the entirety of, let's say, even consciousness in the galaxy, arguments that could be made... You know, who would want to just stop at Cohen or stop at Rawls? It's not what we should be doing. In fact, the only thing that academia really does that's good is produce a looking into, you know, an academizing of these issues. So the rest of humanity doesn't have to play around with them with their free time. Honestly, it's more of a curse than a blessing. If you have a bunch of people who are supposed to be the smartest people in the world, supposed to be our experts, and they're all positing theories that rely on the rest of us to come to an understanding at their level, you have basically a class full of insane people. You know, and the people who come into the academy are going to be the only people who actually tend to those theories and who actually attain the level of those theories, it's not going to be the general society and the general public. Me, I gave up on all those theories a long time ago, and I know what I'm saying is very complicated here, and maybe the general public is not going to understand this podcast entirely, but for myself, I pursue no theory that is not willable and in the good of the general public. I believe that it is really in the good of all of us to understand and demarcate the line of truth and allow truth to die out of its place in society. So many of us come to be irrational and think about things like conspiracy and think about things like invisible hand in society. And it's not irrational to imagine that these things exist. It's irrational to imagine that they're such ultimate forces that are so hidden. They are right there. It's not even a conspiracy. It's just a matter of fact, most of these things. And what makes them crazy 
is that you, you know, protest to some huge conspiracy cover-up, like everyone's hiding it from you. No, just a few people are hiding it from everyone else, and anyone who, you know, gets in on the truth has to be dealt with, and blah, 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 that whole situation's scary and ugly. At the end of the day, as normal people, all we want to do is understand the world around us. We don't want to understand every last word Quine said. We don't hope to get the entire meaning of word and object and put ourselves in the shoes of the author through his entire experiences so we could write our own book. That's something that professional philosophers need to do. And we are all by nature philosophers. It's not even a profession. It's just a matter of being. You know, so through these through this example, which is highly philosophical, and trust me, our next segment is going to be way more informal. I'd like to you know talk about the things in my life that you know are just struggles with people that have huge truth conflicts and are you know completely confusing and absolutely hard to pull my head out of you know and make sense. And the things that we find just common in society, you know, we'll get to those things very shortly in the next segment. But I had to give you this one-off of a very philosophical example of a theory that was highly regarded as true, that was about the progression of the world and for the good of the world, that had its blinders and didn't come true and left a bunch of people with a broken spirit, a bunch of Marxists with a broken spirit and a broken philosophy and a real defeat. And the worst thing is that these were supposed to be the people who were changing things, who would finally bring equality to society. And here they are, they lay defeated in wreckage and it gives so much of a power to the other side to think that, you know, a proletariat revolution would never happen. You'd be a fool as a capitalist to think that just because Marx is long defeated that, you know, <laughs> that the people who don't have tons of money aren't sitting, start sharpening their knives waiting to, you know, come into your mansions and take your money if things get bad enough for them. Anyways, enough social and political highfalutin for now. I hope you enjoyed listening to this brief example of the unfolding of a truth. If you want to know more, please pick up Self-Ownership, Freedom, and Equality. It's a wonderful book, and Cohen speaks very honestly about his progression in life as a philosopher. He talks about times when he understood part of the issue and was compelled to write and had no idea about the other part of the issue and had to put that off till later. He's a very um, beautiful thinker in terms of letting us into his head and letting us know his process. And um, ultimately, I think he's a very compatibilist thinker, even though he would not you know, begin to accept some of the things that John Rawls tries to pass off, and I wouldn't either. All right, that's for another show. Stay tuned really soon for part three. And thank you for joining me. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And best of health. And still love y'all. Bye-bye for now.
Hello, and welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is episode two, Dying for the Truth. This is our third segment, and per episode one's format, our third segment is a guest spot discussing further real-life examples of our topic. So, today... And also following episode one, we have my favorite speaker, guest, and interlocutor, my lovely wife, Diana, here to share her thoughts on dying for the truth. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, honey, for that beautiful introduction. Um... My name is Diana, and today I will be discussing dying for the truth, in particular, the death of identity. A lot of us are immigrants. We have lived in one country. We were born and grew up maybe a little bit in uh, country A, and then we had to move to country B and get used to living in that place and all the changes that comes with it. Some of us have experienced um, culture shock and identity problems. Um, A lot of immigrants, children always have problems like, what identity am I going to subscribe to now that I am here, I was born in country A, and now I'm living in country B, and I feel fragmented, and I don't know what, you know, um, like mores and, and social etiquettes should I follow if I stay like I am from my, what, the country I was born in, I am going to be made fun of, and if I adhere to the new country, I will be not sticking to my origins and, you know, fake or whatnot. So that's an example of a lot of identity uh, problems and fragmentation, just feeling fragmented, really. Um, Another example is, you know, if someone's family, you know, a lot of us, our families change. Um, maybe we grew up with our parents and then we move out, um, to be by ourselves and then we get married and then, you know, let's, for this hypothetical example, we get a divorce and, you know, that changes all the surroundings and everything that comes with it, you know. So, do I view myself as a single woman now? Am I a divorcee? Am I, you know, what's my identity? What's my family? What's my origins, you know? So, the country where we were born could change, our families could change. Um, You know, a lot of us, we could become estranged from our families and just, you know, um, maybe just, like, have some pets and and even, like, maybe garden, and that could be our... 
family, you know, like, and also, like, our careers could change, and, you know, what about identity and career, you know, we could be, today, I, I want to be an artisan, like, I want to make, I don't know, pottery bowls, and then tomorrow, I have to go work at, let's say, Burger King, because I need to make ends meet. What's my identity, you know? Um, you know, our our habits could could change and that could affect our identity as well. Like today I'm a smoker, tomorrow I wanna quit smoking. What do I think of myself now? Um, you know who am I? Who am I? What's my identity and how do I define it and how do I the goal here really is to live the good life so how do I deal with this identity problem you know some of us experience like this dualism like I said in my first example of you know I'm from country A and now I'm in country B and what's my identity you know am I French am I American am I um, what's my identity and you know, our families could change, our jobs could change, our habits could change. Um, a lot of things could change, and we want our identity to survive. Most of the time, we just want our identity to stay constant so we can feel safe within ourselves so we could feel like we know who we are when we look at the mirror and that in itself could be you know something that keeps us from that that something that keeps us going really you know um a lot of us you know grieve the death of an identity like you know, when you're trying to work on yourself and evolve and, you know, you have a goal in mind and you want to become a certain, you know, you want to change a certain aspect of yourself and you're working really hard on it. And then let's say you achieve it. Let's say you're trying to lose weight, you know, let's say you're someone who is like overweight and you're trying to lose weight and then you lose the weight and then you're someone who's skinny. But in your head, you don't know how to be someone who's skinny. You don't know how to dress like someone who's skinny. You don't know how to, you know, carry yourself as a skinny person. You know, it takes getting used to. It takes getting used to. And you might experience what we call, you know, grieving uh, the loss of that past self, that identity that's no longer you. You're no longer someone who's overweight. You're no longer someone who is French. You're no longer someone who um, works at an office for a living. You're no longer someone who's married. You're no longer talking to your parents. You're no longer, um, you know, smoking. Whatever, whatever it is that we're that we're dealing with and you know going through. So, the death of identity. What does that mean, the death of identity? Does it mean that we're going to be without an identity? Or does it mean that, you know, we're just going to have a new identity? Does it mean that our identity changes with the weather? 
with our moods, you know, different identities for different... Good morning. Good morning. That's our neighbor. Um, So what does it mean, the death of identity? It means that instead of labeling ourselves and hanging on to a certain identity and every time something shifts in our life we have to redo the work all over again and redefine all these things for ourselves so we can know who we are so we can feel safe with ourselves and in our skin why not just not bother with that whole enterprise you know instead of trying to define it Why not just be it and not waste our time with these definitions that we're always so busy with, these labels, you know? The only time an immigrant, you know, I've been one, I've talked to a lot of them, and the first, you know, moment of peace one experiences is when they feel like, I'm not... A or B, I'm not this or that, I'm just what I am, and I don't need to define it, I don't need to find a way to, like, find the extremes for it, it's just, it is what it is, and these labels we try to fight, which become our identity, are imposed on us mainly because we we find ourselves having to answer um, to these, you know, voices in our heads that are always trying to, you know, define us. And it's like, besides from filling out a form, when, where are you really going to need to say, I'm X or Y or this or that? You know, we could be even, someone could ask you, are you X or Y? And you could just, you don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer it. You really don't have to answer it for yourself. You don't have to answer it for anyone else. You just don't have to answer it. We've just been conditioned to feel like we have to answer it, but we could question that and we could just stop and we could change it. And we don't have to have a fixed answer that equals, you know, a value for the function identity. And that's the death of identity. It doesn't mean that you don't have one. It just means that it's something that shifts every day, you know? I mean, a chameleon doesn't, you know, am I green, am I blue, am I... He just changes and moves on and he camouflages and it allows him to survive. And that's the thing, like, being fluid like that, it it helps you survive because you could be whatever you need to be at that time and place and you don't have to have a name for it. And no one can tell you that you're doing it wrong because they don't know what you're doing because there's no name for it. It's just, it's you, you know? It's free movement in your mind, in your body, in your daily activities, in your nationality, in your career, in your um, status, in your society whatever you know all these you know some parts of our identity we have no say in like our biological identity we don't really get to choose our biological makeup yet we walk around saying you know i am this or that or you know male or female or you know 
Ancestry X and Y, but none of that needs to stick like that. It really, it's something we make up and it's not helping us, so why would we keep, you know, log logging it around like it's... So in conclusion, dying for the truth, the death of identity. We're all trying to be compatible, we're all trying to be okay, we're all trying to live the good life. When you're talking to yourself, not just be nice to yourself, but stop trying to put a name on it. Death for identity, death for the truth, let all that, just shed all that determinism to try to find this compatibility with God knows what. No one's gonna ask you to write a list of all the things you are and all the things you are not. You're asking that of yourself. And you can make a conscious decision to just be who you are without trying to define it all the time. If you're doing the things you like with your time, if you're spending your time doing meaningful things, that's all that matters. You just make peace with yourself and with your identity by letting go of your identity and just being. There's no need to put a label on it. There's no need to find the truth of your identity. You know, your life is not an Instagram biography. It's not, you know, I'm a wife and a mom and a yogi and a this and a that and, you know, you're a human being and you deserve to be without labels, without judgment. Thank you for listening. Alright, Diana, thank you always for your time and your thoughts. You really um, have always helped me put perspective to, you know, my understandings. And certainly I wouldn't, you know, have the theories I do about focus and about the place of truth in modern society without hundreds and thousands of hours of countless talking with you. So, as always, thanks for your time. Everyone out there, stay tuned. Um, we got one more segment before the conclusion to do um, in Dying for the Truth, which is going to be uh, about the abhorrent calculus, right? That um, we have to find a balance between the time of our life and wanting to understand our life in deep ways and how do we calculate the line of time to put in versus depth of understanding to know that we've done well. Or do we go with our current trend and shy away from all this? How do we deal with this? Alright, so 
that's coming up shortly and enjoy this and more on the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. Welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast, episode two, Dying for the Truth. This is our fourth segment. Tentatively is about the abhorrent calculus, that's what I call it. The abhorrent calculus is an equation that most of us are involved in. It might also be called the economic equation. It has to do with the amount of energy you put into life to find the good life versus the amount of return and good you get. So we are seeking to find a point, a certain ratio, where we never put too much effort into things and get too little reward out of. It sounds very simple. It's something that affects us in tons and tons of situations, and ultimately it's one of the conditions of a philosophical theory that a philosophical theory must meet to be aesthetically beautiful. That is, that it's well-balanced. The time we put into it is worth what we get out of it. This has to do with death for the truth, because our primary motivation, if not substituted by something like economy, something like a real good, is usually the intellectual good of the truth. Sometimes it's said in a different form, sometimes it's said as fate or... In the Aristotelian world, it's said to be uh, the teleos, or purpose. But either way, what we're after is the real, genuine conclusion. What is my life supposed to be? What's it you know, about? What is my function? What does it mean to be a good me, and for my life to be good for me? So, when the truth dies... Either this calculus has to die with it, or it has to be updated. Now, the thing is, the death of truth is not something that's necessary. Humanity could go on the rest of time believing in truth. It's just going to keep us from reaching certain ends. I mean... I personally think that it's something we all should be involved in because we don't lose truth. It's really just the death of truth as the absolute, as the end function of philosophy, or the end function of our thinking about life. And we don't substitute anything that's supposed to be as absolute as truth. We don't put God there, we don't put, you know, piety. We give up on looking for that kind of thing in the world. Um, We have reasons to do so. You know, we're finite beings, and those kind of understandings are infinite, which draws us to the calculus. We don't have enough time to understand the world perfectly. We don't have enough time to understand the universe perfectly. And the absolute truth requires of us that we do this. 
know, so most of us, if we can't get past truth, are dead in the water right there. We can't understand the entire universe with the little bit of time we have. So we, you know, we're screwed. The calculus is going to fail. No matter how much effort we put in, we're not going to attain the good in that kind of situation. I mean, there's, you know, the reverse of that situation where instead of thinking that we're finite in our understanding, you know, you think that you're finite in your efforts and you can't... <coughs> instead of not being able to reach it within your time, you can't reach it within your potential. Forget about the time. If you had all the time in the world, it wouldn't matter. It's just not within the human potential. This has its own sort of grief. You know, so there's an internal grief that could come about from this where you feel bad about yourself, negative about yourself, just in and of being human because it's cursed in this way that you could never reach perfection by your skills or you could have the opposite where you feel bad about the world and humanity you know becomes a curse because you could never have enough time in this world the world has betrayed you for you to find the truth these pathways these um, understandings they befall us all throughout life they torture us, they have influenced so many people, so many great thinkers, and so many just normal people. It's a heavy reason why depression can get so bad, and why negative thinking can get so bad, are these absolute pitfalls and traps. We put down the truth, and we see at least some relief. But what about an answer? You know? Once truth dies, what about our answer? Well, there are some answers to be had. There are definitely some answers to be had. You might not be able to gain God's view or the perfect perspective. But you can ensure that you have done all that is possible for you and of you in your life and nothing more can be asked of you the fact of the matter is is that there's a very grand beauty to just the littlest bit of intellectual discovery it's something that's sublime just as a religious moment is described as sublime. It's a moment where we see just how large our capacity is and just how small our knowledge is so far or compared to what's out there. And these moments are pretty significant for humanity. We call them sublime in the, you know, almost scientific sense because it, it's an extreme jump of states. You go from having a feeling of extreme sadness to extreme happiness and back again with not very much respect in between. So it's a very sublime state emotionally to go through this all. 
our best chance in a world like this is to find a compatibilism, find a balance, find a middle ground. If we're truly in a world where there is no center, no absolute center, as thinkers like Darida say, then it becomes our job to see the center as a function, something that we assign and something that therefore builds facts around or into the information around it. So once we, you know, understand our lives in a functional point of view, everything else becomes colored in that way. Now we yet again have to worry about you know, making some absolute or not. Should everything be colored in this way? Do we have the time? Do we have the skill? Forget about it. What we'll be able to see is that if we apply this function, if we apply this frame, and we do an analysis of anything, that we get an analysis of that thing true to the function. So if it comes up in our life, if a time comes up where we need to do so, we have trust in ourselves that we will do so and that we'll have the answer. So in so much as that, we have all the answers that we need in life. We have access to them. They're there. They're there for us. And there's no reason to believe that you will fail in your pursuit of a good calculus of life. Philosophy, instead of holding the best theory, which is a very narrow view of what's, you know, philosophy and what's good about philosophy, can be seen as analyzing and synthesizing information and just having an open mind to connect things. It's sort of like a tool. Uh, I look at the world and this explains what I'm seeing, what I could possibly see, and what I couldn't possibly see kind of tool. Now, I've been enjoying other podcasts here on Anchor, and I listen to one called We Live on a Planet, and my friend over at We Live on a Planet was talking about making a podcast and how much time goes into making a podcast and the question seemed to come down to you could spend so much time in post-production on a podcast or you can go and spend so much time learning before you do the podcast and not really do so much post-production. Or you could just neither and find a way, do neither and find a way to have uh, confidence in your work. The point is there's a very confusing calculation to be done in any time we sit down and try to create something. It's been said in the philosophy of history that the job of a philosopher is merely just selection to select what things go together to create a compelling narrative or argument or understanding. 
No, we wish we could have everything, as we've said before, but we just can't. And when we give up on that wish, it seems pretty sane to think of things in terms of how much we can achieve. Does this not slide us into some elitism? Like, why isn't uh, We Live on a Planet show any worse or better than my show or any worse and better than some of the other shows we've seen out there? Well, it's never that simple. What it would be best, what would be best for us to do, in my opinion, you know, and in my understandings of the functions of life and applying them and thinking through them. And not just in the time I've put into it, because honestly, you could put one second into it and come to this same conclusion, or you could put a lifetime into it and never see this conclusion. But, in my opinion, the best thing for us to do is to understand that Philosophically, we are beings capable of appreciation. Like I said, we're capable of understanding and seeing what we need to, when we need to. This is beyond just having faith in yourself. This is knowing that rather than not having the time or not having the tools to be able to make the calculus come out right, it's knowing that necessarily you have the time and you have the tools and the calculus is always going to come out right. In fact, when you're sitting around worrying about the calculus, thinking that it's not coming out right, you're creating that situation. It is an exact example of what you're worrying about manifesting in front of you because it's what you're creating, it's what you're focusing on, it's the functions you're using to translate and to understand and to center yourself. The only sense in which I am a positivist is in the sense that I believe that when you walk the road to get somewhere, you get there. When you put the time and effort in to have something, you have it. You know, so when you put your time and energy into solving a problem, what you have in your life is that problem. Now this is exactly how these truth knowledge structures that I have, or rather post-truth knowledge structures that I've been trying to explain and explaining throughout this um, Dying for the Truth episode this is exactly how they work. Like I said of the counterexample paradox, we put in the world what we want, and those things are what we say of them. So is there an object beyond language and beyond logic? Yes, there is. It's something we could designate, but it'll have no language to it, and it'll have no logic to it, but it's something we created. It's just nominally what we make of it. Now, what I've said nominally, and we're thinking that it's, you know, something our brain authors and puts in the world, we have to be careful yet again to understand that it's not absolutely this. Just because I have a theory and I put it in the world doesn't mean that you're going to see it and appreciate it the same way. 
but you are limited. If you want to understand it, you have to come and understand it from my perspective. If you want to just evaluate it, you're going to always be evaluating it from your perspective. The best thing to keep in mind, besides all the other best things to keep in mind, and it's pretty much just rephrasings of the same thing, is that things are exactly the way they seem, and yet things are able to be constructed to seem a certain way. If you ever want to have a great time in life and not feel so sinful about your uh, logic and how it works, I suggest you go read some of the quotes that you could find from Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher. He believed in the compatibility of the incompatible, and for great reasons. He lived in a society that casted things in extreme opposites and tried to understand which of those two extreme opposites were more fundamental. Yet he saw clearly that the closest thing to an opposite was its opposite. When we build a range of understanding and we have two opposites, the only thing we could clearly say is that these two things are closely related, even though they're as far apart as they could get, everything else doesn't really fit in anywhere physically in a way that we could determine, except these two things, which are opposite each other. So the closest thing that we can know to an opposite is its opposite. I mean, so these are things that are both as close as possible to each other and as far as possible from each other. There's always enough time for what we need to do. Focus is the power of humanity, as I've said in the first episode. And when we see that there's room for the truth to be dead, there's room for things beyond truth. Focus is possibly the most broad application there is beyond truth. So take some time today, every day, and play with your ability to focus. Learn five languages at the same time. People tell you things like, you won't be able to do it. Your focus will be all over the place. But if you set your mind and your focus, not even your mind, just your focus to it, you will be not even close to surprised at what you can accomplish. You can accomplish anything that's physically possible. I'd love more interaction with this show. Please feel free to, you know, ask any questions. Tell any truths, tell any lies. You know, put your own formula in this. I really hope no one out there is swallowing what I'm saying entirely. You know, I, 
I put it there for people to have something to relate to, to put their own sense into the world. And ultimately, certain things are going to look alike, you know, and that's okay. And we don't have to worry about authorship or ownership. All we have to do is enjoy our lives, because when we put our enjoyment in the world, it's there for us to find. So have a good day, because I'm having a good day, and I'm going to have a lot more. And smile, because I'm smiling when I leave my house. I like to see other people happy too. Take care. Love to everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Making a Living from Philosophy podcast. This is segment four of episode two, Dying for the Truth. As always, segment four is our conclusion. This one has been fun. Not even purposefully, but just in virtue of me having a young baby and having to be running around all the time. I have started recording this episode and got it mostly um, done about five times now. I don't even remember what I said and all those others. They're not saved. I do this spontaneous and the conclusion is sort of always going to take the same form when it comes to the topic. This is a really good way of even showing what I protest truth to be in this day, truly, you know, where it fits in. Because usually, as the episode here has pointed out, truth is taken to be the end-all, be-all, and people, even if they're not trying to be great moral human beings and philosophers nowadays internally are questing for truth, questing for knowledge. There is a part of everyone who wants a part of greatness that, whether they admit it for not, or not, seems to be going for the truth, the absolute truth. And, you know, all of us have put ourselves or are ourselves in relationship to this thing. The way I see truth is functioning is more of a frame, you know? Truth for me makes most sense when it's viewed historically. It makes very little sense in the moment or in judgments of a lifetime. It's a very paradoxical thing. There's a lot of ways to prove things that seem true that are not true. Yet the truth has become paramount, absolutely paramount. If you ask me, it is the greatest distraction, the greatest slide of hand, the greatest pull, drag of the mind. It's 
it's not even accidental and it's not just um, a matter of conspiracy. I mean, demonstration has been the rational benchmark of our knowledge for a very, very long time. And demonstration is mighty. Oh man, it's mighty. If you've ever had something demonstrated to you mathematically in a compelling way, and you feel like you really understand it, and you connect with that pure truthfulness. I mean, there's a feeling of ecstasy, you know, that comes along with it. This is all in the ancient. I mean, that word ecstasy meant, you know, in ancient Greece, uh, in ancient Greek, rather, a connection with an understanding you know, and a theory wasn't what it is today. It was something that people actually inhabit, you know, and an orgy definitely wasn't what it is today. In fact, it was a group of people who all inhabited the same theory. It really had nothing to do with sex. Exactly. Anyways, that gets a little off topic. So, the function of truth in our lives now shouldn't just be something that's dead and dying and gone and grieved and... No, no, no. The death of truth is not the death of truth proper. It's the end of the empire of truth. It's like Rome. It has almost no actual bearing over what happens here now in global politics, except our historical understandings of it greatly influence our attitudes and our ideas. People who want to study statecraft and people who want to study battle end up, you know, looking at strategies and empire building and that thing, those things heavily influence them. What is true, you know, what is importantly true, is not just what is now the case, you know, because that reduces it to just the picture in front of you. It happens that there's a whole world in front of you, and it happens that there's annals of knowledge in that world, and they're deep, and that picture in front of you might contain a you with a mind with deep knowledge of those things. At the very least, it contains you with a language that has deep knowledge and deep significance for those historical concepts. It's not as if there's no way around them, it's not as if there's no way out, because what is simply is, it's not everything and it will not forever be everything. It's still merely possible and only necessary in very certain model logic. It's interesting that in open-valued logic and model logic that you talk about possibility and necessity or intentional understandings of truth, meaning sort of the human understandings of truth, when you say it 
happened or it's gonna happen it's like saying it's possible that in time it will happen all these are way beyond the classical understanding of truth where we just go either a or b but not both or either a or b and both or a and not a so we say things like if the sun is up it is daytime and this is true so long as the sun is up and if the sun is not up then it is not daytime and it either must be true that the sun is up and that it's daytime or that it's not daytime if the sun is not up these things don't take into account immediately and in the plain text of themselves that there is a human understanding at work in these propositions and we try to express them as someone like Quine would say as eternal sentences and they function best when they are made in their eternal utterance the utterance of a sentence that is true for all of time a fact a law of the universe these things Quinn even admits himself are like gods in kind and they only differ in degree degree of clarity and degree of realness so a truism might as well just be a god of old in a sharper degree and a sharper kind and someone like Klein is okay with that but someone like him has this problem called referential opacity that tells you that your objects and your understanding is always unaccessible by other minds and even though it's expressed in eternal sentences they're your eternal understandings and there must be some you know external thing that makes them work and for Quine it's the natural science world the world of natural science this is a very sad situation as i've described it through these epi- through this episode it's a situation where all of us are trapped in our own language and it doesn't have to be said you can make it happy but ultimately it's a situation that leaves no real room for actual connection only because it puts truth as the primary concern and tells us that we're unable to really understand each other at the end of the day our necessities are intransformable into others necessities they're underdetermined scientifically to start with and there's no way to adequately prove their translations according to these such theories and there's no way to quantify modal logic there's no way to have views that are perfectly quantified mathematically yet known to be the views of one person that could be universalized so for someone like Quine there was no room for quantum physics 
it's very hard for most people to understand what quantum physics is, but if you look at it on the lines of our present discussion, what it appears to be is the mathematical differences that arise through our understandings of the world, our quantus, and our physical observations of the world. So what happens is when we build theories, you know, they're quantitative theories, and as much as they describe something, you know, that we think is real in science, they aren't capturing everything, and we know this. So eventually we're going to observe other circumstances that relate to them, and we're going to have to take those new quantas, and we're going to have to draw them into a unified view and field. Now, this is more like the kind of truths or take on truth that I want to promote, that I want to bring to people. It's one that takes into account that everything that we've known is true is just something known by us is true. It's not something that really is forever, ever true. That's not something we could know. It's difficult to do this for a lot of people because they've wanted for so long the absolute truth. I think it's one of the reasons why we see some things as continuing problems and can't still understand them. I'm going to stretch this episode out just a little bit more because I really want to talk about this topic. It has a lot to give us in terms of insight. It's not a philosophical topic proper. It's a mathematical topic. It's, um... It's Fermat's last there, right? And it's said to have been solved in mathematics by Andrew Wiles. You know, with the help of some other theorists. And it was solved as a topologi- topological problem, a topological solution. Now, Fermat, you know, wrote that he didn't have enough space to provide the solution in the book there, you know. And I think what, personally, I think what he meant by that is his only way of solving that problem was a philosophical, more theological way, and I do believe that that's really what he meant, that even if there is a mathematical solution to be found right now, he sees a clear philosophical solution. I mean, he wasn't just a mathematician, he was, you know, a lawyer and a philosopher and a lot of different other things. Anyways, Fermat's last theorem tells us that A plus B equals C, right? Or a rational, like, constructed number, right? A number that's composite of two other integers is only solvable if those numbers are raised to powers, right? It's only solvable if that power is two or less. So once it goes over 
a to the 2 plus b to the square equals c to the square to 3 or above, you'll never find a solution. Now many people have tried to make sense out of this and tried to provide inductive, deductive types of solutions. In mathematics, I don't think that that is what Fermat was after, and I don't think that's, you know, something he would have wrote the kind of comment he did in his margins if he really, you know, had that. But what he did have the time at the time is maybe this understanding. Now, in a two-dimensional theory, in a truth-based theory where things are either A or B, or either true or false, right, something like um, a donut, like the physical, you know, shape that we draw in geometry, in two-dimensional geometry, is able to be cut up and measured, right, adequately, and expressed in terms of its pieces, in terms of its possible, you know, ultimate values and shapes. And that was a rational thing, like a thing in the mind, that donut. It was a mathematical object, like a triangle, a square. And we could have perfect knowledge of this thing in these two dimensions, in a true or false world. But when we raise the dimension to three dimensions, and we think of an actual, real three-dimensional donut, and this is why it's topological, because these aren't geometrical properties, they're topological properties. And we think of taking that donut and chopping it up into little pieces and doing an integral calculation on it. What we have after we do that calculation is no longer a donut. We have a donut that's been chopped up into pieces, and there's now infinitely small yet infinitely large distances between each piece that wasn't in the thing before, and it's not able to become itself again. So when we increase the dimensionality past the simple rational truths, the truths of God and the truths of mind, we aren't able to reduce our proof back to the object that we we're trying to talk about because we've dissected it so much that there's no possibility of it being what it used to be. Now we could make mathematical arguments about this now finally because we're in a time where there's quantum physics and there's ways to talk about all of this and understand it. I guess when it comes down to the death of truth, what I'm sort of wanting for society, and it isn't a place where everyone has to come to this understanding, but rather it's a frame or a function that all of us know how to use and know that we know how to use. I mean, we're all actually using it on a daily basis and a lot of us aren't informed of it. So it's just a matter of awareness. It's not a matter of people really having to transform. It's just becoming aware 
of how these things work, of how when we dissect our lives, we change them, and when we try to put them back together, they can't possibly be what they were. But yet, when we fill out a form that asks for our past, we have to give these concrete identities. And we're constantly bumping into these quantum walls in real life, not just in physics. And there's very little appreciation, even in psychology, for how to make these kind of changes or how to make these kind of recognitions in life and in society come about and allow society to be productive around these things rather than rather than them being in the background and us guessing whether someone who's more sensitive to these issues is a crazy person or is a delinquent person or is a genius or you know a CEO or anything rather we just need to understand and when we do we see a much different future I think everything's a lot brighter when we just see that you know the quantas the quantitative data that we put to everything doesn't function in the old way of truth it really just is getting past the old notion of truth and understanding that even if there is something that's real and true, and there are, there's things around us at all times, that those things are open in terms of their significance because we define life and we make life meaningful and we make life significant. And that may affect the universe, it certainly does. But even if, you know, God's purposefulness in the universe is a mirror image of God's entirety and God's actual entirety, it wouldn't take this away from us. God's entirety is just not our place. You know, truth proper is just not our place. And human truth and the human ability to understand and construct is an amazing thing. Focus is an amazing thing, and its products are as large as the universe of God if it's given its proper power. So, you know, uh, centering the human race, it's not a bad thing to be doing in any language, in any time. It's way better than referential opacity. So that's the conclusion of the death of truth, and... Next episode, coming shortly, is going to be an analysis of history. Yeah, I mean, it's something we have to talk about, given what we just said. So, um, have a wonderful day, and enjoy this, and enjoy thinking about this, and making your own sense out of it, and thank you. And thank yourself, and cool times, guys. Take care.